0: The following talk is from St. Michael's Fulwell, a gospel-centered community for Fulwell, Teddington and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfolwell.co.uk. Now, we're going to come to our reading now, so do pick up a Bible and uh, turn to page 886. Page 886, and uh, we're going to read through Daniel chapter 3. Amazing story, amazing book of the Bible. Uh, Simon, our associate vicar here, is going to come and preach from Daniel chapter 3 in just a few moments' time. But first, um, we're going to read it. So page 886, and Kat is going to come and do that.
1: King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefect, Governors and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command.
0: Kat, thank you so much for reading. I'm just going to send some handouts around. Thanks, Ed, so much. Morning, everyone. We've been singing, There is no one like our God, but what would you do faced with a situation like the one they were in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us as we ponder these things. God, our Father, thank you for these accounts of events from so long ago. And yet, sometimes terrifyingly like the world that we live in. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us more of yourself and more of what it looks like to follow you in a world where sometimes doing that has horrendous consequences. Pray, Lord, you'd um, lift our hearts, lift our eyes, lift our lives to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what would you do in their position? Worship the image with everyone else or die? I mean, do you fancy your chances put on the spot like that? Do you think um, you could ever be put in a position like that as someone um, who uh, perhaps calls yourself a Christian in this country? Convert from your faith in the Lord or die? Here in the comfortable UK, it's quite easy for us to read a passage like this and sort of enjoy the story and let it pass us by a little bit. It feels like part of another world, somewhere more barbaric a long time ago. Thankfully, we're far away from it in time and space. But we've got to slow down before we make a judgment call like that. As we speak, in Nigeria, on average, 14 Christians are killed for their faith. Every day. Last month in Pakistan, more than 20 churches and 100 homes were attacked by mobs armed with mallets, sledgehammers, pickaxes, axes. They smashed and and burned the buildings. In Egypt, I read that young Christian women are being kidnapped and forcibly converted to Islam and forced into marriages. In China, I read about children in school recently being made to fill in a questionnaire about their beliefs. And when some of them said that they were Christians, their families were called in for meetings where they were asked to sign a declaration renouncing their faith and refusing to do so might, it was suggested, mean expulsion from school and presumably further consequences. So actually, the the experience of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego is not alien to our world some people face exactly this kind of convert or die or convert or face serious consequences kind of situation. Now, what about here in the UK? Um, there's very little actual physical persecution of Christians here. But the mood has been changing over the last generation or so. I think when I grew up in, in the sort of 80s, 90s in the UK, the biggest fear that most Christians faced was of being unfashionable. You know, uh, a bit boring, a bit conservative. But people mostly liked and respected Christians. People were glad Christians were around, even if they didn't want to be one. And today there's still some of that. There's plenty of that, actually. And that's great. But sometimes things turn a little bit more sinister. And I don't know what you've seen of that or experienced of it. Sometimes, if you watch enough on the media, Christians are portrayed as religious nutjobs, strange, unthinking fundamentalists lined up with dangerous politics. And it's easy to have some fears sometimes about what kinds of things we might face. If I become a Christian, or if I let people know that I'm a Christian, what might that do to my job prospects? Will being committed to church make that tricky. Uh, If I make myself known as a Christian, what would that do to my friendships? What might I stand to lose relationally? Will there come a time in the not too distant or distant future where Christians are more physically persecuted here? Maybe if the government became very militant in its secularism or if Christians are targeted by Islamist groups in our society. This passage forces us to face fears like that of things that could happen, what would you do? What would I do? What would we do in their position? Are we willing to be known, if we are followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus and face whatever levels of discomfort, big or small, that that might involve? So let's get into it. Um, we're back in Babylon. We've been there for the last um, a couple of weeks so far, around about 600 B.C., Uh, In the last couple of chapters, we've already met this guy, King Nebuchadnezzar, the ruthless and brutal dictator of the Babylonian Empire. And under his rule, Babylon has conquered multiple nations around, including Israel. And from Israel, they've taken a generation of young people, teenagers really, including these Three Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Apparently, a couple of weeks ago, when I told you what we used to call them in our church youth group, not everyone could hear. So if you want to know, my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. If that helps you to just get those names inaccurately in your mind, that, uh, that might help. Um, anyway, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with Daniel, uh, have been kidnapped, brought to Babylon to be brainwashed. The whole idea is that that they're going to be forced to forget about Israel, forget about Israel's God, and become Babylonian, and worship Babylonian gods. A sort of forced religious and political conversion. So let's think about our our first heading on the handout. When the world demands worship or death. Verse 1 Nebuchadnezzar, made an image of gold. The footnote tells us uh, that it was 60 cubits high, uh, uh, which the footnote says is 27 meters or 90 feet, which is huge. I don't know the stats. Does anyone know how high the roof is in here? We should, we should figure that out. Um, I don't know if anyone's good at estimating, but 27 meters is vast. It's higher than that, isn't it? I'm sure it is. Um, tantalizingly, a few meters uh, southeast of where the ruins of Babylon still are in modern-day Iraq. There's there's still a place called Dura, named in these verses. And in the 1860s, a French archaeologist found a huge brick pedestal that uh, was 14 meters square and 6 meters high. No one really knows, but it, it could be where this image was put. Now, we know, having looked at Daniel 2 last week that this was a ridiculous thing for Nebuchadnezzar to do if you were here last week you might remember that Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream he dreamed about a great big statue and Daniel explained the dream to him and Nebuchadnezzar was the head made of gold but after him were going to come several more empires. There was a a silver one and a bronze one and an iron one, and Daniel explained the dream to Nebuchadnezzar that there would be a series of empires coming after him, and then the kingdom of God would come and replace all of them. And so at the time, Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be humbled and impressed and think highly of Daniel's God. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar's on a journey. Next week, we will see him finally bowing the knee and recognizing that there really is no one like the God of Israel. But for now, he seems to have learned nothing about that dream that was meant to humble him, because he makes his image almost certainly representing himself entirely of gold, and he wants the whole world to come and worship it. In verse 2, he invites all the officials from all the provinces of his enormous empire to this grand ceremony where everyone is to bow the knee and worship the image And it is worship or death, verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Worship or death, and everyone must conform. Now here's something I think we need to spot about the way this chapter is written. Daniel um, chapter 3 depicts Nebuchadnezzar in two ways. He's intimidating, I mean it's horrible isn't it? But he's also ridiculous. The intimidation is obvious. The most powerful man in the world, surrounded by his entourage, um, gathering everyone to pay homage to him, ordering death, people are killed. He's a scary man with a huge ego, a vicious temper, and the money and the wealth and the power to let him do whatever he wants. No doubt he's intimidating, but he's also ridiculous. And that, that is the flip side of Daniel's portrait, the list in verse 2 um, that Cat uh, read so brilliantly. The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials came to the dedication of the image. And then you get the whole list read out again in verse 3. I don't know about you, it's slightly hard not to smirk a little bit when that entire list comes up again. And that's deliberate, It just makes the whole thing feel a bit pompous, a bit silly, a bit overblown. Suddenly this entourage sounds like a kind of Monty Python-esque huddle of yes men who sort of wander around together, oh yes, your majesty, yes, yes, your majesty. And then there's the music. Verse 6, as soon as you hear the sound of the horns, flutes, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image. And then the whole list is there again in verse 7, and again in verse 10, and again in verse 15. It's a sort of relentless game of global musical statues. Everywhere you go, every time you hear, imagine walking around London and every time you caught a little bit of music from somewhere, you come, oh, quick, everyone bow down. It's really silly. It's really comical. We're meant to find this silly and see the bluster and the emptiness of it all. This silly, trumped-up man who demands worship or death, he's intimidating, he's horrible, he can kill you, but he is ridiculous. How often are human regime's a bit like that? Let's be honest. How do you feel when you watch something like uh, the North Korean regime portrayed in the news? You see the footage of those massive rallies in Pyongyang and tens of thousands of people moving in sort of choreographed unison, bowing and scraping, worshipping their president, Uh, devotion to the regime of the Kims. You hear about the nuclear uh, capacity, the threats to the rest of the world. We probably have these two reactions. On the one level, yes, it's intimidating, this level of power and control and imposed conformity and those enormous images and statues of Uh, the Kim family. It is awful. And people die by their thousands in prison camps. It is awful. But on another level you think, it's also ridiculous. Kim's officials all dressed in their old-fashioned army outfits with their sort of fixed grins of admiration and their little notepads that they pretend to write in as they follow him around writing down every word. And we know that the whole thing is propped up by brainwashing and bluster. Even though North Korea is a terrible tragedy that deserves our tears and our prayers, it is also pompous and pretentious and narcissistic and immature and silly to the point of being ridiculous. And when comedians poke fun at it, they're right to do so. That is exactly what Daniel 3 wants us to feel about Nebuchadnezzar. Intimidating, awful, but also ridiculous. We should feel the same about any human being that wants to be worshipped. It's true of any figure in history that you read about that was hailed as a god. Actually, worshipping anything other than God is is ridiculous. Romans 1 describes it like this. I think we can pop that verse on the screen. Uh, This is talking about all humanity saying, although they claimed to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. When we as human beings worship something other than the God who made us, who deserves all worship, then it's crazy, whether we're worshipping Nebuchadnezzar's image or anything else. At times, we're told, you've got to worship the idol of your career or money or security or pleasure or whatever those things are that we're meant to pursue above all else because otherwise you'll lose, you'll fail, your life will be over, you'll be excluded. And sometimes... The the, the temptation, the the pressure to worship, those things are sort of slow, subtle influences. Sometimes they come to us like an ultimatum, like these uh, three men faced. Uh, a, A bit like a worship or death ultimatum. Here is your new work agreement that binds you to this company in unhealthy ways. That will keep you away from family, keep you away from church. Sign here or you're out. Here's our new company or school or college's new secularist policy document that says what declares how you need to speak about religions. You need to promote them all as true or speak of them all as false or promote all sexual behaviors as equally acceptable. Sign here or you're out. Or final warning, one more mention of God to your colleagues and your jobs on the line. How can we Stay faithful in times like that. Maybe it helps at times to see the funny side. Psalm 2 talks about nations and peoples and kings conspiring against the Lord and taking a stand against him and trying to overthrow him. And then verse 4 says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Sometimes it's good to see the ridiculousness of the way people fight God. We're blessed to live in a country with freedom of the press and freedom for political cartoons and satires and things like that. Those things can go too far. Sometimes they're terribly misjudged. But as Christians, we're, we're called to give our earthly leaders honor and respect, very much so, but not worship. That belongs to God alone. It's ridiculous when human beings want to be elevated for worship. But even as we think about that, let's not forget how intimidating and dreadful it can also be. The experiences of our brothers and sisters in North Korea, China, Nigeria, elsewhere. Let's remember them. Let's pray for them. Let's stay faithful in not forgetting uh, those uh, terrible situations. So how can they, and we, stay faithful when persecution hots up? Well, let's compare Nebuchadnezzar, the man who demands worship or death, with the Lord. And our other big heading this morning is, trust the Lord who delivers worshippers from death. Let's go back to the drama. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego take this decision to worship the God of Israel, the true God, not to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. And verse 7 Uh, so it tells us that essentially everyone else around fell into line right across the empire right across the known world so these three guys are really going to stand out Uh, like a north korean parade and a couple of soldiers suddenly break ranks and start speaking against the regime they'd be lynched pretty quickly and sure enough Some astrologers came forward to denounce them. Maybe these are the same astrologers who couldn't interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And felt rather shown up. Well, they're getting their, their own back now. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they must have known they were going to get in trouble. I mean, put yourself in their position. It must have been so tempting to just justify bowing down to the image in their minds. To conform. Just fit in. Just do what the Babylonians do. We don't want to get in trouble we just need to survive think of all the arguments they or we could use uh, to not acknowledge the lord god god wants to preserve us alive doesn't he he knows we'd be bowing under duress so he'll let us off he'd want us to just keep our heads down at this point think what all their jewish mates might be saying don't get us all in trouble Think of the influence you've got as administrators of the province of Babylon. You've been put in these roles. Don't throw that all away just for the sake of being faithful to God. Think what good you could do, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you just stay in your position a bit long. Just just compromise enough to, to keep that position. Think of Shadrach calling home to his dad back in Israel and what his dad might say. Son, don't resist this think of your mother, think of me, think how distraught we'll be, think of the sacrifices we made to get you a good education back home and enabled you to uh, be taken off with this Babylonian training scheme. What about your girlfriend, your mum wants to have grandchildren? All of these things, all of these things come very easily, these plausible sounding reasons to just keep our heads down, to hold on to our positions. Oh, God will understand if I don't stay faithful to him. But idol worship is idol worship. And by the time Nebuchadnezzar summons the three friends, he's incandescent with rage and uh, ready to make an example of them. He gives them one more chance. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, he says in verse 15, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then this kind of jibe at the end. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Sounds arrogant, and it it is. But remember, all of the so-called gods of all of these nations around Babylon seem to have just caved one after the other as Babylon has defeated those countries. So who's going to rescue you? Which God? Yours? That one I've already beaten? But no, they stick with it. Verse 16. Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves to you on this matter. In other words, we're not going to resolve this by talking. You're going to have to throw us in. And verse 17, they declare their amazing trust in God. They say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. They know that God can save. There's no doubt in their mind about that. The thing is, they don't know if he will. So we know the end of the story. They didn't. So they don't presume on God's rescue. Verse 18. In verse 18, they say, Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They don't know on this occasion, this particular occasion, if God will rescue them. But they know he can in some Christian circles that would be criticized as a lack of faith but actually these guys are a brilliant example of trusting God, trusting what he's really promised rather than what we might like him to have promised there's no promise in scripture that Shadrach Meshach and Abednego on this particular day in BC 60 whatever it was would be rescued from the fiery furnace they didn't have a word from God on that. Um, A couple of years ago, I remember hearing uh, a very moving interview with a a Nigerian bishop, Ben Kwashi, of the Joss region. It's a place where the Boko Haram group have um, have been regularly murdering Christians for for years. And he told some extraordinary stories about how he himself and his family have been targeted again and again, repeatedly, survived, survived, but desperately hurt at times. Uh, and, and that's wonderful, his survival. We all praised God for those rescues um, and prayed for his future safety. But despite the rescues that he has seen, Ben has often said he thinks it very likely that one day he'll be killed. He knows that God is able to save. He's experienced some pretty miraculous rescues. But he says even if God doesn't save me one day from these physical attacks. I'm going to worship God anyway. Now, why would he say such a thing? Well, the Lord, the Lord can save. The Lord has saved. When we look back in history, we see, as Christians, Jesus coming to die on the cross. He has done everything for us, saving us from sin and death Salvation has been achieved by God. He has saved us. He will save us. If we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we need have no fear about the ultimate future. God has saved us. He will save us. Today, he can save us, but we can trust him on his decision on whether on this particular occasion it is the right thing to do. Nebuchadnezzar's fury is is stoked up to the max. So is the furnace. The soldiers heat it so high that some of them are killed, even as they uh, put the three friends in. And then in verse 24, we get this fabulous moment where Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet in amazement. Uh, You know, for all of his majesty, I think this chapter wants us to leave us us with the image, not of the glorious statue, but of Nebuchadnezzar standing gormless in amazement, staring into the furnace. And what verse 24 says, Uh, what freaks him out the most is not the fact that the three friends look absolutely fine but that there's someone else in there with them he says weren't there three men in there look I see four walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods so Nebuchadnezzar calls them out there's not a mark or a singe or a whiff of smoke on them who was it? Who, who was in there with them? By verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar is calling this person an angel. Perhaps, as many people uh, would say, this could be Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate uh, appearance. This passage doesn't, doesn't clarify. But either way, God was with them. God was with them, with them in the fire, showing his presence just when they needed him the most. Even more significant than the fact that they were saved from this particular danger is this wonderful fact that God was with them in the fire. They probably had no idea he was going to show up like that, right there and then. So far from Jerusalem, so far from all the things that used to give them certainty about God. And do you know what? As Christians, if we're trusting in Jesus, we can have... Even more confidence than they had because of what I've already said that Jesus has saved us. He came to die on the cross to rescue us so that He will save us. We'll be with God face to face one day in heaven. And right now, even if God feels distant, especially in times of trial, we can know that God can save us. And even if we don't know whether He will, We can know that he is with us. As well as the cross when Jesus came to die, to rescue us, there was then Pentecost, where the Spirit came to be present with believers. He lives in the heart of every single believer. We're never alone now, never without God's Spirit. Whatever circumstances we're in, whatever ultimatum or danger or test of faith you face, whether it's a a, a big you know, worship or death moment, or whether it's just a a little thing at work or at home where there's just a temptation or a push from somebody to turn away from God to something else. Whatever it is, Jesus is with you by his Spirit if you're trusting in him. Do you remember Jesus' parting words to his disciples as he ascended to heaven? He said to them, See, I am with you always. At the very, to the very end of the age. It's a promise. Jesus will never, never leave us. Verse 28. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. And he says, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command And were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar has seen an amazing, compelling combination of things. He's seen God rescuing his people. And he's seen God's people trusting in God. That is incredibly compelling. And if we're Christians living in today's world, those are the things that that we want people around us to see. God's rescue, we love the world to see what God has done in coming to rescue the world in Jesus. And our faith, we love the world to see that God can be trusted and, and, and we trust him. That's a wonderfully compelling combination. Let's pray that as we go out, that we would live that way. Maybe you're here this morning as someone who's just beginning to look into these things. Who is God? Does he exist? Can he be trusted? Can he rescue me from the dangers of life? Ultimately, can he rescue me from from death forever? Those are great things to look into, and also look into the trust that many of us here have in him. It's a wonderful, beautiful, powerful thing. God has rescued us. He will rescue us. He can rescue us. And he's here with us in every moment. Let's Bow our heads let's pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you have promised to never leave us. That because of what Jesus has done, dying on the cross for our forgiveness, rising again, that we might have eternal life, pouring out the Spirit that you might be present with us, that we can in all honesty say that you are with us every second of every day. Pray, Lord, that you'd help us to know your presence, to be sure of it, and to know and be sure of your promises so that when pressure is on us, in big ways or little ways, to just keep quiet about you or just worship something else. Pray, Lord, that you would grant us a sense of your presence, a trust in your power and promises and rescue that enables us to stand firm, to be faithful to be those who are willing to be counted as yours in the sight of others. Pray for strength for that. It's not easy. We need you. We need your uh, comfort. We need your empowering. But please would you do that in each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.